this morning what I wanted to do is really share some stuff uh, from my heart. Um, uh, people that know me know that really probably my prime identity uh, is as a missionary. Um, not a missionary in the old way of thinking missionary. In fact, when I went to seminary, I thought I would be a missionary. I really wanted to go to Africa and, and work with some little village somewhere. And, um, but that didn't transpire. But, you know, sometimes we still have that uh, old-fashioned understanding of missionaries, that they go over to another country or they go somewhere. Actually, that's all changed. We've come to realise that actually each and every one of us is a missionary. Why? Because a missionary is a sent one. We are sent into our neighbourhoods, into our cities, into our universities. Wherever we find ourselves, we are sent people by God with a message. Okay? Each of us embody a message of what God has done in our lives, of the, the richness and the power of who Jesus is, the fact that God lives and is real, um, and wants people to come back to him, <laughs> that he was the creator, the father of all humanity, and just longs for his people to turn around and put their face back towards him. So each of us embodies that message. It's, you know, and that's lived out through our own personal stories. I love the fact that this is called the Story Church. I think it's almost probably on the, my top name for a church, to be honest. Um, because there's so much said just in that, the story. You know, it, it's, I always think of the Bible actually as really one long love story between God and his people. You ever think of it like that? Some of us think of the Bible like a book of rules and regulations. It's not how I see it at all. I see it as a love story, just looking at the history of Israel and their God, how God drew out Abraham to start his own people, all the way through, all the prophets looking forward to see the Messiah come. The Messiah comes and he changes everything. He makes God accessible to us in a way God never was accessible, not in the same way. And he gives us an image of what redeemed humanity can look like. He's our model. I love that. And, it's, and the whole New Testament is about our relationship with God, the church's relationship with God. Um, you know, in the Old Testament, I will share some of this tonight. In the Old Testament, it is. It's very much a relationship. God is Israel's what? chosen. But in terms of a relationship, what type of relationship is it? Well, that is in the scriptures, father, children. It's actually more husband and wife. Okay, more often than not, Israel is kind of the adulterous wife. <laughs> okay, which is where you get your prophets kind of railing again and again. What are you doing? Your faithfulness, you know, your faithfulness is here, not to these other gods. You know, so it's this constant kind of relationship. You come back to your covenant with your God, with your partner, with your Husbands. So it's a husband and wife analogy. And in the New Testament, with Jesus, what are we to Jesus? His children, his bride. That's what I'm looking for. We are the bride of Christ. That's what the church is. And we are being prepared for, for the wedding feast. Again, this is very relational kind of language. So when I say that the Bible, I see it as a long love story. It really is between God and his people. So I wasn't going to share any of that this morning, but that's just a little side thing. Um, but what I do want to share is actually, um, again, it's something close to my heart, and it will em embody some of what I've just said. 
But a number of years ago, a book came out, uh, the Barna Research Group, you may know of them, they're a Christian uh, group that do a lot of research into culture and into the church, just trying to help us take, take the pulse of where we're at. And this research they did was um, they got people that were what they called outsiders, people that were outside the church, they were not believers, uh, did not uh, ever go to church, um, and they asked them, it was, they got 16, between 16 and 35-year-olds, so they were targeting that demographic, and they wanted to get an insight or a snapshot of what those people, the outsiders, thought of us, the insiders, okay? So they asked them a lot of questions about, what do you think about church, what do you think about Christianity, what do you think about Christians? Now, let me say, that whilst in many ways the results weren't overly surprising, they were quite disturbing, actually, when you really think about it. Um, a couple of the top uh, answers that people got, so when people are outside speaking of us, two of the top answers, which I guess shouldn't surprise us in some way, was that we are judgmental. You are the ones, or we are the ones, that like to point the finger. Always kind of got the moralising kind of language, the, the pointing of the finger or the clucking of the tongue, oh, that kind of thing. Okay, we are the judgmental ones. So people outside the church feel we judge them. Can we own that? We probably need to, don't we? <laughs> Another one they said was that you're hypocritical. You don't say what you really believe. You know, you don't, you live a contrary thing. You're pointing out all of our errors and our mistakes and all the rest of it, but look in your own backyard. You better kind of fix your own lives up before you start pointing to us. You are hypocrites. Okay, now these are not pleasant titles <laughs> for God's people. Okay, another thing, which and we might talk more about this tonight, but actually the top answer from that demographic, and again, this shows uh, where culture is at and all the rest of it, uh, their top answer that they said of us was that we were anti-gay. So just as a side thing, know that the church now is being judged by how they do or don't love gay people or people from the LGBT community. Okay, now again, this is the first time in history that's probably happened to us because it's the first time in history we're really having to navigate this conversation in the same way that we are now. So it's new and we're sort of kind of trying to work it all out and what do we do and how do we respond and all that. But up to this point, anyway, we're not doing very well. But again, that's some of the stuff we'll, we'll look at tonight. But what, I'm, what I want to do with you this morning really is just simply give you three things that I think are really important for us to know and understand, three things as, in a sense, reminders, because I know when I speak these things that you already know the truth of them. But I know probably you, like me, I need to get reminded of these things again and again and again. Um, but these things, I think, will help us as we engage with people that are outsiders or however we might want to label them. I like to say those that don't yet believe in Jesus because there's always a possibility that they will at some point. So for those, as we engage in our lives, as we are missionaries, now again, you must see yourself as a missionary, you are a sent person with a message into this culture, into this world, into the places where you work, into your homes, into your universities, wherever you might find yourself, you are to embody a certain message that looks a certain way in order for others to be able to look at us and say, oh, something a little bit distinct. You know, I have a friend, Michael, who, who says to people, we need to be living questionable lives. There's a little bit of a play on the questionable lives where people are asking questions about us. 
Not because of the judgmentalism, but because of the things, the good things that we are doing. You with me? So what I want to do is just uh, reflect on that. And again, back to the missionary thing. In your neighbourhoods and in your lives and in your worlds, there are, you are, there are filled, they are filled. Let me get my tongue right. Filled with people that don't yet know Jesus. And it's important that we understand what posture that we are embodying, how we are coming across to them, whether we're actually opening up the doors for Jesus or if we're closing them. Because for too long we've closed the doors on people. So let me just go through um, a few things here and again. They're not difficult to understand and they are reminders. Can everybody see the whiteboard? Yeah, I'm only just going to use it very uh, briefly. But let me, first point. The first thing usually that we are scripted in the church to believe, okay, is that every human being is a sinner in need of redemption. Is this true? Of course it is. Of course it is. You'd be crazy if you thought you weren't a sinner. If You know, I mean, just look at this crazy world. And sin in our own lives. Even though we might have been redeemed and we have ongoing forgiveness through Jesus, we know that we continue to sin, do we not? That's why we need that constant kind of, you know, forgiveness, that access where God gives us his grace and sets us right again. Um, but too, I think for too long and too often we, we've viewed people outside the community of faith as sinners in need of redemption first. Okay, I'm going to suggest to you that actually there's a more fundamental truth that we need to relate to people with um, and that when we do, it actually impacts the way we are with them and it will impact our posture. So sinners in need of redemption is true, but it's only a secondary truth. The primary truth that we can say about any human being is, anybody want to have a guess? Thank you. We are first and foremost made in the image of God. This is the most fundamental truth you can say about any person on the planet. Okay, this comes before the sinners. How do we know that? Because Genesis 1 comes before Genesis 3. Okay? Now, as a missionary or as a sent one or as somebody engaging in culture, engaging with people, if I look at people first and foremost as a sinner in need of redemption, do you know what happens to me? Their sin or whatever behaviours I can see about them gets in between me and them. And you know what happens to me? I get negative about them because I begin to fixate and focus on all the stuff that they're involved in that may or may not offend me. I mean, I can even have visceral responses. We can have visceral responses. Have you ever been around somebody and you find out something about them and you have this kind of visceral response? Your body kind of almost wants to move back from them? That can happen when we're hanging out with people, can it not? Now, we can't control our visceral responses, but we can give that to Jesus and say, no, I'm not going to let that stop me from engaging here. Okay, but if we're, if we're constantly focused on that, what happens is my body, if I hear and focus or think about somebody's sin that I'm engaging with, I kind of, even if I don't do it physically, but I kind of take a step back, metaphorically. I don't want to get too close because we have all these other weird things in our brain that, oh, if I hang out with that person, I'm, aren't, I'm going to be con aren't I going to be condoning what they're doing? Or if I hang out with them, maybe I'll catch something or... <laughs> or their whatever will rub off onto me, all of that. I mean, I get asked this question a lot about people. If I'm, can I hang out with these people that don't know the Lord? You know, 
Isn't that going to be compromising? No, it isn't going to be compromising you. We're called to be light and dark, light in dark places. That's what we're meant to be. But we get this kind of weird thing around people. But I'm going to suggest that if we begin to look at people first and foremost in the Imago Dei, uh, which is the image of God, it'll actually radically transform the way you engage any human person. Why? Because if I start looking at this person, no matter how marred or muddied the Imago Dei or the image of God in them has become, if I begin to engage on that basis, do you know what happens to my body? I want to step into that relationship because I become curious. I want to see the image of God and how it works in this person's life. And you know what? And then I make it my task to actually call that forth, to begin to speak and say to them and, and focus on all the good and right and compassionate and beautiful things that, that are there within that person. Now, granted, some people we might have to dig a little deep, okay? But it's there. I remember my, um, uh, when I worked in the uh, welfare sector doing social work, I worked in prisons and all sorts of things. I'm, I was dealing with a lot of messed up people, a lot of people that had really marred images of God. You know, they were being really dirtied up. But usually, in many cases, it wasn't through necessarily their own fault. These people had never really got a good start in life. They'd been told and fed a whole lot of lies about who they were and all these false and ugly and horrible labels had been put onto them. You know, I saw it as my role to begin to remove some of those negative labels and put the good labels that God gives them onto them. And do you know what? I would see people transform. Do you really believe in me? Really? You mean I'm not a bad person? I've just done bad things? Really? Really? Yes, really. Because God created you. I remember my, uh, my uh, supervisor, my team leader, uh, when I was working in the welfare, she was a militant lesbian, and my boss was a completely dominant, strong atheist, right? These were my two people that I worked very closely with. I loved them. I loved them. And they called me the God lady, because they, they knew I was <laughs> an ordained minister, and my hubby and I were leading a church, and all the rest of it. But my goal was to call forth the Imago Dei in them. And you know what? With those two, it wasn't really hard. Okay, it wasn't really hard because they had hearts the size of Texas. There you go, I used Texas in that. <laughs> hearts the size of Texas. I saw them working among the broken and the lost and their love for these people was incredible. I would call my boss the secular saint. I'd say to him, Brian, you're doing the work of Jesus. That's why you're out there. Where do you think your compassion and the sense of justice comes from? It comes from God. He'd go, okay, Debbie, ha ha, like, you know. And Michelle, I would say the same thing to her. What is it that compels you? You are incredible. You do more good work than most Christians I know. These were people that were getting their hands dirty on the behalf of the poor and the broken and the lost, trying to help them get their lives right. That's the Imago Day out working in them. Is it not? That's the values of the kingdom that are within them, the kingdom values of justice and compassion and bringing dignity and restoring hope and healing the lost and giving them, helping them to flourish as humans are meant to flourish. So I would just name it in them. I would just name it. That's what we've got to do. We've got to call forth the Imago Dei in people. If you're hanging out with somebody who's lost and broken and messed up and all the rest of it, and you've been negative and kind of always reprimanding them and this and that and all the rest of it, change. 
change the way you're connecting with them. Begin to say, I'm going to be positive. I'm going to talk good things to this person. I'm going to speak life to this person. I'm going to call forth all the beauty that I see within. I'm not going to focus on the negative. Do you know what would happen? Your relationships would be revolutionised. Even with our friends in the church. Sometimes we get negative with one another, don't we? Our role is to call forth the image of God within every human that we encounter. How much nicer is that than always being the wretched negative, oh, well, well, wells? That's what we're like. I don't even want to hang around Christians half the time. <laughs> Serious. <laughs> We've got to do better at our posture and the way we relate to others. Okay, put the foundational truth before the secondary truth. And I promise your posture and the posture of others will shift towards you. Because you know what? We all want to hang around people that are positive, do we not? That want the best for us? That want to see us achieve and grow and flourish? I want that. That's what the world is looking for. Not this negative, judgmental kind of attitude. That's the first one. The second one is we've got to do some work on our understanding of holiness. Now, this is a big one. Now, I don't have enough time to unpack holiness. It's a big, uh, well, it's big, just big. Like, how do you define holiness? Um, but I want to just say a couple of things. First and foremost, we know this. Holiness, we call holiness an attribute of God. It's actually part of God's being. God is holy, okay? So our holiness is based in God. I mean, that's the obvious thing. That's the first thing. It's based in God. God is holy, and we are called as his people, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, people belonging to God. We are called to be holy as he is holy, okay? So holiness comes from God. The second thing is there is a set-apartness in holiness, Partness. I don't even know if that's a word, <laughs> that I think sometimes we misunderstand. I think we think we've been set apart. We talk about consecration, which is kind of a bit of a Christian word. But when something is set apart, it's set apart for special use. You probably do that. I mean, we set apart people, the best in teams to play certain games, or we set apart things. Maybe in our homes, our special crockery comes out for when the guests come or whatever. Our whole life is full of we set apart different things. Well, our set-apartness comes from the fact that God set us apart. God, way back in Genesis 12, with the calling of Abraham, calls him out of his family and his community there and says, I am taking you as my own and I'm going to send you into a place and from your seed, I am going, you are going to start the beginning of what is going to become my people. Okay, so from Abraham became the nation Israel. And you know the story as you read through uh, Genesis of the beginnings of all of that, okay? God chose a particular person to create a particular people that they would be his people. So each of us here, and the church follows that on, we continue that on, we've been grafted into Uh, the original call that was for Israel. We've been grafted in. We are now God's set-apart people. He has chosen you to play a special role in this world, to give you a special identity and to give you a special purpose. You are the set-apart ones, okay? Because we now belong to God, right? 
Now, often we think that the set-apartness is that we are meant to be separate from the world. Okay, that is not what it is. We're not to be separate at all from the world. We are to be in the world but not of the world. Okay, so it's none of this let's take away, get away from this big, bad, scary world because of all the things that are happening, we're going to run and hide away somewhere. That's not the call of God's people. Okay, so let's get that right. The separate or set-apartness is us. We are now God's people. We have been set apart. And the third part about holiness is that we then are to become holy. We are called to become, become, what am I doing? Holy. So he calls us out, creates, starts in Abraham, creates a people for himself, and here we are, all here. Don't, don't you freak out when you think of the whole of history that has gone on before us. So many have gone uh, throughout history before us. They were God's people. We've been set apart, and now we are to live among the nations, just like Abraham was, okay, we are called to live in our neighbourhoods, in our workplaces, and we are to become, in those contexts, holy people. We are to show God's holiness because we are called to be holy. And we are to show God's holiness to these people so that they will say, what is it about these people? What's going on there? Okay, so we are to become holy. Now, how do we become holy? What's our model or what does holiness look like? Again, I know it's a big question, but this should be easy to answer. Thank you. What is our image of holiness? Jesus. Okay, now that might seem like an obvious answer. And I mean, if you answer Jesus, you can never get it wrong anyway, can you? It's just the way it is. But this is where we need to really pay attention. If Jesus was the Holy One, and he was, he was the only person that was not sinning or didn't sin, okay? So number two, you know, he's not a sinner in need of redemption. He's not just in the image of God. He is God. He comes in human form, okay, to give us a model of what perfected humanity looks like. There's our image. What is it to be holy? You don't have to look any, any further than looking to the person of Jesus. And so what our job is then to do is to begin to read and know and learn from this person, Jesus. Okay, that means we need to be reading our Gospels over and over and over again. Now read the rest of the Scriptures as well. But the Gospels is where we get the image of him and where we get to see what Jesus was like in the neighbourhood and how Jesus approached people and the way Jesus spoke to people. I'm always reading my Gospels and looking at two things. What is the posture of Jesus? Okay, what's his posture with this person, with that person? And what are the priorities of Jesus? What's really important to him and what's less important? And then I measure mine up against that. It's a good place. It's just a good exercise. It's, it's just very helpful for me to do that. Now, here's our model of holiness. So we've got to say, what is it? Look at him. Look at the life he lived. What, it, what did he do with his life? Where did he spend his time? What does holiness in action look like? What does it look like? So a question I love to ask people is, that what was it about the holiness of Jesus 
that managed to draw people from all walks of life, particularly those people that were pushed to the margins of society or those that were deemed sinners. I mean, he even gets called the friend of sinners. I love that. Jesus is called the friend of sinners. Why? Because he hung out with a lot of sinners. Why? Because he knew they were created in the image of God. So they were worth hanging out with. Okay? So here is Jesus, the holy man, drawing all of these kind of bungled and broken people to himself. They wanted, Some of them even climbed up trees to get a better look. Okay? There is something magnetic about the holiness that Jesus embodied that drew people to himself. And usually, again, it was the, the, the broken and the bungled, those that had been pushed to the side, those that were considered unclean. Now, if that's the case, we need to ask another question, which is the more confronting question. What is it about the holiness that often us in the church embody that actually has the reverse effect on those sort of people? Okay, I'm not seeing those same broken, bungled people kind of knocking on our doors to get in or necessarily wanting to hang out with us, partly because we've got that judgmental kind of thing going on. Who wants to hang out with judgmental people? <laughs> I don't. I need to be uplifted all the time. I need nice things said to me. That means you all have to come up and tell me later. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm not that insecure. <laughs> Jesus' form of holiness was a holiness that was not afraid to get its hands dirty with messed up, broken people. It's the holiness that touched out, touched and healed the leper. It's the holiness that allowed prostitutes to come close. Let me tell you one story, one biblical story that I love. It comes from the Gospel of Luke. And if you read your Gospels pretty regularly, you'll see that there's always seems to be ongoing this kind of deal with Jesus and the Pharisees, right? They're always trying to trip him up. There's always kind of tension going on. Now, you know who the Pharisees are. They were kind of the religiously correct people of the day. They were the ones, I mean, they get a bit of a bad rap sometimes, um, but really, they were the ones that were upholding Israel's identity. They were, they were remarkable in their evangelism and their knowledge of God's word. There was a lot of good things uh, we can say about the Pharisees. But we see them in the Gospels, backwards and forwards with Jesus, and we're like, there's always this kind of clash because Jesus or people are like following Jesus and they're looking at him, what is it about this man that all these people are following? And, and his, his holiness, if you like, was unconventional. It was different to what they were used to. Okay, and there's a story, um, and of course, they're always trying to trip him up. Is he going to go contrary to God's word? Because these people knew and understood God's word. They knew the law, okay? And so every time Jesus did something that was unconventional or didn't seem quite right, they're onto him. So this time, he's actually invited to a Pharisee's house for dinner in Luke chapter 7. And so he comes in, I'm guessing there's probably a lot of other Pharisees there as well, and, and uh, dinner parties there, and you know, pretty big. I mean, I love, you know, a lot of Jesus stuff ha happened around dinner parties. Have dinner parties, people. <laughs> Serious, it's, they're, they're great. You just bring your non-Christian friends and your Christian friends, those that are not going to judge them, and you hang out. It's a neutral space, and it's great. Jesus spent a lot of time around food. Okay, it's good. Good, it's good to eat. It's good to eat. Um, so he goes to this dinner party, and here he is uh, reclining at the table, okay? And it's probably packed with people because, you know, wherever he went, there's kind of a bit of a hustle going on around him, like all these people leaning in, trying to see what's going on. And at some point, a woman 
the scriptures say of ill repute, starts making a beeline for Jesus while he's reclining at the table. Now, what scholars say, the woman of ill repute was more than likely a prostitute. She was probably a local prostitute that was known to the people around there. So she comes into the party, she starts making a beeline to Jesus, and the Pharisee that invited Jesus to dinner, in his mind, starts doing this. What's going on? He's the holy man. Isn't he claiming to be the holy one from God? What's he doing with this woman letting her come close to him? Like, what's going on? Now, I can imagine he's not the only one saying that. I can imagine people looking. Have you ever been in those situations yourself? Oh, why are they hanging out with them? What are they doing? We all do it, don't we? (laughs) They're questioning his holiness because it's not what they're used to. Because their holiness is a be ye separate kind of holiness that keeps them separate from the unclean, from the impure, from those that are involved in lifestyles that they shouldn't be. Okay? And here's Jesus letting a woman come to him. Okay, now I can just imagine others are kind of kind of nudging each other. What's he doing? You know, he can't be from God. She's a prostitute, etc., etc. And then Jesus. Oh, I love it, love it. Jesus, I can just think he's probably like, hang on, guys, I've got this. I'm wanting to model for you what it is to really be holy. And I've let this woman, this unclean woman, come and attend to my feet. None of you bothered to wash my feet. She has come in and she is washing my feet with her tears. Now, I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about that. We all know the story. We're talking truckloads of tears here, people. (laughs) How do you wash feet without a lot of water? Okay? She is weeping and she is at his feet and her tears are just coming out of her all over him and she begins to wash them with her hair. Okay? Now, this is a very, very intimate act taking place here by a woman known for her lifestyle okay Jesus is making a very deliberate point here in saying the way forward is no longer a be ye separate but it's a radically engaged holiness that gives access to people like this woman that's the type of holiness we need to be embodying okay more often than not we have this holiness that looks more like moralism and we end up becoming the Pharisees going, oh, you shouldn't be doing that, okay? Jesus came into the world for the lost and for the broken and he calls us to do the same. Does that make sense? Okay, third point, and I am over time, <laughs> so we'll do this one really quickly. The thir- third point I want to um, just introduce you to, some of you should know because you have Methodist background here, is a concept called uh, provenient grace. Now, provenient grace is a wonderful, wonderful concept. John Wesley built his whole ministry upon this understanding. Provenient grace, again, I won't go into it. It's really, it's, it's when we convene something, something starts. And the prevening beforehand is all the preparation that goes on. Like everyone came and prepped up this church before you came. And then the worship leader convened the meeting, if you like. Okay, so it's talking about stuff that's done before Okay, so provenient grace is a concept um, that, or I think how Wesley says it's like this, is that God 
is at work in every human being, calling to them, whispering, sometimes shouting to them, hey, I'm here, and look at my son, isn't he amazing? Okay, God is trying to get every person's attention. Okay, now, in the church, our scripting, which is a little bit odd, we have been taught, if you like, or scripted to think that every person outside who's not yet a believer, that when we roll up to them, we kind of bring God with, with us in our back pocket and look for an opportunity to hand him over, okay? God is not in our back pocket. God is already at work in that person, okay? It's really, really, really important that we understand this. Now, why I love this concept is because this is my story, okay? 24 hours before Jesus grabbed me, you would have looked at what I was doing, what I was involved in, my attitude, et cetera, et cetera, and you would have thought that person is a million miles from God, Okay, a million miles. You would have put me on the impossible to convert kind of list. You got friends like that? You can't even conceive of them ever knowing the Lord. Never give up on them. Okay, before I became a believer, two weeks before I was saying to my, my dear gay friend Jason, Jason, I feel like I'm getting close to the answer to life because I was a seeker in my own way. I was just seeking in all the wrong places. And I said to him, I think I'm getting close. I feel like I'm going to have an answer. And he goes, oh, I think you're taking too many drugs, Debbie. <laughs> so I, I was kind of like, well, whether I was or not is kind of irrelevant to the thing. The fact is, God's spirit, in the midst of the mess that I was in, God's spirit was drawing me. Okay? He was calling me. When I look back through some of my poetry in that season of my life, I've got biblical themes and analogies and that that I've written in it, feeling like a sheep without a shepherd. I mean, all this kind of stuff. I'd never read the Bible. God had been calling to me, okay? God is calling to every human. Now, they might be looking in the wrong directions and getting themselves messed up, but he is at work in every human. So your role is not to come and bring and hand God over. It's to actually do a lot more listening and looking and seeing and trying to find and discover the traces of God in people's lives. When you were kids or when you were younger, some of you might still do it and that's okay. We used to do a little thing called join the dots. Did you do that? You know, and you join the dots and you link them and it ends up having a beautiful picture rather than a boring circle, right? But what part of our job as missionaries is, is to help join the dots in people's lives. Help give them a clearer picture of what's going on. So when they have those aha moments or those theophanies that we call them when they might look at a beautiful sunset and get caught up in the wonder of the sunset and say whoa is there a creator behind that you know I often think if we get caught with people are drawn to beauty but we get stuck with the small b beauty but we've got to help them know that there's a big b beauty behind that you know my my boss and my team leader you know where does their compassion come from that draws them to do good in the neighbourhood and with these broken people. Where does that come from? There's a bigger, there's a God full of compassion and justice that will right the wrongs in this world. People in their sexuality often say to people, what if in, in humanity's explicit search for sex is an implicit search for God? Okay, we all long to know and be known, do we not? Okay, we long to know and be known. We are relationally wired. It's how we're created to be. Okay, and we sometimes get ourselves messed up in situations that we shouldn't. 
G.K. Chesterton, famous theologian and poet, said, when a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he's looking for God. Think about that for a minute. Okay, we can only see negative in that encounter. But what is being sought there? Sometimes it's just about human touch because we long to be touched. We long to be held. You know, C.S. Lewis said that in all of our vices, our virtues gone wrong. All of our vices, our virtues gone wrong. It's the orienting of our passion, of our desire that ends up down the wrong path. And we've got to help people to see, actually, you've got to turn this way because your longings will be fulfilled. Jesus can give you a great sense of satisfaction and life and living. You can experience health and wholeness and flourish as a human. That's what we're called to do, to help people reconnect with their creator. And as they begin to turn their lives and orient them towards him, they begin to become who we were created to become in all the glory of what it is to be holy people. Does that make sense? Remember, God is at work in all humanity. And the other thing, too, as a missionary, it means there is no place that you cannot go or no person that you cannot connect with. Now, that doesn't mean we're all called to go into all contexts. That would be unwise. But it does mean that there is no place where God is not. And there is no person where God is not. Just from the mere fact that their image is within them. Does that make sense? Okay, I'd love to go on more because I love the whole concept of provenient grace. But just remember, God is at work. You get to partner with him. So we need to be listening and looking a whole lot more than just speaking and handing over messages. <laughs> okay, Let's, let me just pray for us as a community. Jesus, I thank you uh, for your people here. People, the story, I love it, Lord. Bless them. Um, help them to become all that you have called them to be. Help them to become those type of holy people that people do question, not because, you know, of our moralistic kind of bent and our wagging judgmental finger, but because there's something healthy and right and good and desirable about us. We're, we're kind of like, it's like breathing fresh air. Lord, we, people don't get that at the moment with the church. Help us to be those that... that that help people kind of want to live in better ways. Help us to become the positive people, the people that see your image in people, that don't always get stuck on their sin and their brokenness. Help us to be the speakers of life into those dark places and of hope um, and of dignity when dignity has been broken down. Help us to, be the, to, to bring new identities onto people too, Lord. And help us to get our, our understanding of holiness right, that holiness is a holiness that's engaged, a radical, redemptive holiness. Um, and that, God, that you are at work in every human. Help us to remember these things, Lord. And we, we thank you for the life you've given us. And we want to give our lives back to you in your service. Um, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.